Well, greetings, brethren. It's so wonderful to be at the Feast of Tabernacles, to gather together in the presence of our Father in Heaven and Jesus Christ and to worship them and to rejoice in their presence. A number of years ago, as I attended the feast, I heard a phrase that we often repeat in God's church, but to me is one of the most encouraging and uplifting phrases, one that I've always remembered. Mr. Herbert Armstrong, at one time, he simply said, we have to remember, brethren, in the end, we win. And I think that's so very encouraging to know that, especially during times of difficulty or trial, and knowing that we're going to win. And what we're observing and what we're doing here and rejoicing before God pictures that very victory. It's interesting in the scripture in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, the Bible tells us that by the very creation of God, we learn about the nature and the very Godhead itself. In Romans chapter 1 and in verse 20, it says, For the sense the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, this passage is stated in the context of those who turn from God. But you know, brethren, the principle of learning by God's creation, certain things that are part of the hand of God, is very important. It's also brought out in the book of Job, In Job chapter 12, verse 7, it says, But now ask the beast, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the eternal has done this? in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. And so from some of the things that God has created, we can learn important and powerful lessons. Sometimes it's just amazing to see the beauty and the hand of our Creator, and sometimes we enjoy those things. I was reading an article about butterflies, which I found fascinating. I found, for instance, in reading it, that what we look upon as a wing of a butterfly, actually, butterflies have scales, and those scales are transparent. The same is true of a moth. And because of that, the family that they belong to scientifically is categorized in Greek. It simply means a scale wing. And so the wing of a butterfly actually is just a a collage, so to speak, of scales is their assembly that gives them color because they, in fact, are like shingles on a roof overlapping and iridescent, uh, which causes the colors that we see. And, of course, it causes them to be so beautiful and so very, very bright. It's also interesting to know that butterflies taste with their feet. The way they feed is actually through a tube, uh, which when a butterfly first emerges from a cocoon or uh, its uh, chrysalis, uh, because butterfly actually does not have a cocoon. They have a what is called the, the skin or the outer skin that develops to protect them in that final stage of development is a chrysalis. And... When they emerge from that, they actually have two tubes or uh, probesius. They have to join together, and when they do, then they're able to feed. There are also some moths that never eat during that stage, and, of course, their adult lifespan, because they do not eat at that point, have no mouth, no tube, is very, very short. The other fascinating thing about a butterfly is that the caterpillar grows to 27 
thousand times larger than when it first emerges from the egg that is actually a part of the beginning of its life cycle. And if we were to use a human analogy, if a human baby were to weigh nine pounds at birth and grew at the same rate as a caterpillar, it would weigh 243,000 pounds when fully grown. So some of what God has created are fascinating. I gave this introduction to lead to the point of something that I believe I've done in my past. I, I know others have. You see a butterfly struggling to emerge from its cocoon, as we refer to it. And in that struggle, you want to help. And you might actually use a knife or use something to try to open up, believing that if you help the moth out of its cocoon or the butterfly from its caseus, that you're actually helping. But the reality is, is if you do that, then the butterfly cannot fly. In fact, you have stopped a part of its progress, a part of its growth, and it will not mature. The reality is, is that the wings of the butterfly are strengthened and prepared from the struggle. And so as they go through that struggle to emerge, the process of being strengthened and, and having to go through that physical challenge literally prepares them for their future life. It's a very simple analogy, a very simple example, brethren, but it shows a very important aspect of what God is doing in our life. And that is that the struggle and sometimes the trials and difficulties that we encounter, they're important to our preparation to the future. And without that struggle, without the trials, without that preparation, we may not attain the potential that God has given to each of us. In the living church of God, I think one of the wonderful blessings that we have is that we have continued a focus on the need to grow and the need to overcome. I know Mr. Meredith from time to time has brought out that if you want to spiritually grow, you need to pray. And you need to be praying more than just a few minutes each day. Mr. Meredith has said, and it's been said in God's church for many years, that if you want to spiritually grow, you need to pray a half hour a day. But more importantly, there's a focus on growth, spiritual growth, spiritual overcoming. And that's very, very important. The definition of overcoming from the New Testament Word Study Dictionary is as follows, to be victorious, to prevail, to overcome, to conquer, and to subdue. This word overcoming literally describes Jesus Christ and his followers as being victorious over the world, over the evil influences of Satan and this society today, and all the adversaries that we may face in fulfilling our calling. The synonym for overcoming would be words like triumph, to have dominion, to completely overcome, to cause somebody to be defeated, to be powerful, to be strong against, or to have control. And the antonym is a very discouraging statement. It's very easily summarized. It is to be defeated. And so when Mr. Armstrong said and, and said, we win, he's talking about something that God is doing and working in our life, a part of the very purpose in creation in this period of life is preparation. That preparation involves struggle. When we understand that, when we understand that trials help us grow, then our attitude toward them, how we deal with them, how we embrace them, how we use them can change dramatically. And I think it's so important. Here we are rejoicing before God and preparing for his kingdom, knowing that many of the trials and difficulties that mankind will face, they're going to come to an end. 
And God's going to give us a part in bringing about that end, that solution. And that's very, very exciting. But God also wants us to go through that struggle of today, to go through the trials of today for preparation, so that we ourselves are well prepared to help others. So not only do we win, but they win. And God's very purpose in our life is fulfilled. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul spoke of trials that we go through. And it's interesting because the trials we go through are not different than those that even God has not called at this time. Because they're lessons that God wants all of mankind to learn. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. You know, sometimes the things that we go through preceded even our calling in the church of God. And those lessons remain as a part of our character. They shape each of us individually as a person. And as God then calls us with the truth and we go through additional trials, we have an opportunity to sort of hone and put a sharper edge on the building of character that God is literally doing within our life. Now, it's interesting because it says what we go through is common. As we know and is pictured by the days that we keep, that it is a plan of salvation for all of mankind. And so God tells us here through the Apostle Paul that we may go through some things, brethren, because of the truth that are unique, but even in those situations, they're often common that other people may go through for different reasons. It says God is faithful, and this is an assurance we have when God has called us, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And so we have an assurance that the world does not have at this time, but we do have in God's church. It says, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. We also read in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, the trials, the difficulties that we go through, they are to prepare us. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice. You know, I... Here we are at the feast, and we're enjoying all of the wonderful things. And there may be a few that are having difficulty or trial. Most of our trials are not at the Feast of Tabernacles. Many of you may face a trial, honestly, when you go home. Or you may have difficulty in employment or in school or other physical situations of your life because you've been away from home. And we accept that. We embrace that. We rejoice in that. Peter writes, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, of course, that's... In a sense, the day of victory. That's the day when we know that we win. But that preparation that's taking place today, brethren, it's something we need to embrace. It's something we need to understand. It's something that we need to allow 
the very purpose of it to be accomplished in our life. In the end time, Jesus Christ particularly gave warnings to those who would live in the latter days. And I could go through the scripture and we could pull out statements such as in Matthew chapter 24 about overcoming, about perseverance. And we could look at other passages. In this message, I would particularly like to spend some time focusing on a series of instruction, of encouragement, of warning that is given to God's church. And that's contained in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. And quite often when we look at these two chapters, our perspective to them, brethren, is that which is also present, and that is a history of God's people through the ages. That Christ gave an insight into some of the trials and some of the challenges that would face the people of God up to his very return. But at the same time, something we don't tend to take the same note of, and yet it's also extremely clear in the Scripture, is there is a continuing message to anyone who has or who reads these words that it says, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. Because contained within the individual lessons of each individual church is also instruction that's directed at each of God's servants who live in the latter days. And if we understand that, we view it, we embrace it, it can be very, very helpful to direct ourselves in an effective manner, to understand how we can prepare and what we can do and how we can really grow. Because it's very important that we do. In Revelation chapter 1, it tells us that what follows in this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And these are things that God has gave, or God gave him to show his servants. Things which must shortly take place. And he sent it and signified it by his angel to his servant John. It also says then in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And so it's very clear that this is a direct message. It was written specifically for those that would live during this time in human history, those who would face the challenges that we know that lie ahead. And some of the challenges, brethren, that even today in the church of God, God's people have faced. And so with that insight and that overview, I'd like to go through and point out in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the overview of lessons and at the same time to recognize there is indeed a theme, that there's a message that is very pertinent to the time in which we live today in the church of God. Because it's a challenging time in the church. We have brethren that we acknowledge who are not together nor fellowship together. We're not enemies. We're friends. But nevertheless, we are apart. We also have situations where there's emphasis in different groups and different peoples. And it's important for us that we are well equipped. And we take from God's word those things that will help us to meet the challenge in the times in which we live. Now, as you read through this, if you have a red-lettered Bible, you realize that these words are in red. The entirety of chapters 2 and 3 are the words of Jesus Christ as given to his servant. So it's very clear and very direct instruction And it's fascinating because it comes from the very throne of God. As it describes what John saw, he saw Jesus Christ in his glory. It describes him, it says, I turned in verse 12 of chapter 1 to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. 
And so it's important for us to understand that even though there are weaknesses and strengths among these seven different churches, Jesus Christ is in their midst. He's in their midst in his glory. As we read on, it says, One like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. So John is describing in human terms the best he could the incredible glory and beauty of Jesus Christ at the right hand of his Father. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And so in his glory, Jesus Christ literally brings a message. He told John, write the things which you have seen, the things which are and the things which will take place after this. And he gives, in a sense, a message that was the start then of a vision. But at first what we have is a direct message. And he's told in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now as we go through this, I don't want to read all of the two chapters, I would like to highlight some of the verses, brethren, where there's instruction given, because in this instruction you'll find in all seven churches, it concludes with the same words. And I'll skip ahead in this case from Ephesus to the conclusion of the statements made to Ephesus to verse 7. It says, he who has an ear. So I guess if you want to reach up and check it out, Uh, most of us have two. (laughs) So if we have an ear, God says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're told very clearly that we are to be instructed by. Now, we may not live in that time because we also understand that these are messages that extend over a period of time. And we could think, well, we don't live at that time, so why should we listen? That would be the natural human tendency. But Christ made it very plain. If you have an ear, listen. To him who overcomes. And so, and we'll see this repeated in each case. That we're told, if you have an ear, listen. And you also then find a statement that from what you hear, they should help you. It should help you to grow. It should help you to overcome. It should help you to make progress in the area that God wants. And in this case, these are specific areas that have to do with the latter days. The time before the return of Jesus Christ, time in which we live, brethren. And so it's very important for us to understand we're given individual, specific instruction, things that we should be aware of, challenges that we should face. Now, the first of those is mentioned here in Ephesus. In verse 4, Jesus Christ said, Nevertheless, I have this against you. Now, you find in each case there's words of instruction. And there are priorities that are given that are very helpful for us to consider and think about. But there's also instruction given. And in this case, in spite of those words of perseverance, and and God commended them for that, their patience, and how they labored for his sake, God also said that in doing all these things, that they had left their first love. That zeal and that excitement of being first called into the church of God, had died. And they, even though they continued in faithfully serving God, the heart wasn't the same. 
And what God makes very clear is that he wanted in his people, and specifically here in Ephesus, that they would repent of that, that they would recapture that heart, that love and that excitement. And, you know, for some of us, uh, we've been to the feast for decades. My first Feast of Tabernacles goes all the way back to 1960. I've been attending the feast 49, this will be 49 years. And I still remember how exciting it was. And I know it's a challenge. It is a challenge at times because time has passed and we've been through so many things. But it's very clear Jesus Christ does not want us to simply give up. He wants us to go back and to remember the zeal. Now, there, I think every year in God's church, we're encouraged, not only by our experiences, but we're encouraged by the experiences of those who are here for the first time, those who perhaps attend your local congregation who are brand new to the church of God. And when God's truly calling someone, you see their zeal, and it's very encouraging. But it's also something we need to capture. It's something we need to realize that we should hold on to. And we should take whatever steps we can to keep it alive and well in our mind and our heart. Now, we can do that in many ways, but perhaps the most important is a very close and personal relationship with God. Another is to really appreciate and to embrace our calling. But it's a very important aspect of a lesson that we need to learn as we meet the challenges that lie ahead. That we love the truth. As you know, in the book of Thessalonians, the love of the truth is going to separate those who are deceived and those who remain steadfast and will not be deceived. So to lose our first love, to let that go and to just think of it as being unimportant, Christ is saying, no, it's extremely important. And it's the very first thing that's given to us in terms of instruction in Revelations chapters 2 and 3 by the words of Christ. And we're also told here very plainly that in this area, if we have done so, we need to overcome. We need to make a change. We need to turn that around. And we need to truly do that, brethren, by rejoicing before God and recapturing the love and the spirit that we had when God first called us. Now, certainly it can be much more mature and much more with understanding. But the zeal of it, the excitement of it, what it portends and God's word portends for the future, brethren, I think one of the very reasons of the feast is God wants us to experience it every year because he wants what this feast pictures to be alive, to be living in our hearts and our minds, to motivate us, to drive us, to help us to remain faithful as his servants. And we, as we read on, we find interesting instruction in each of the seven churches. As we read on to Smyrna, because that's the next church era, we read in verse 10, as God, again, he commends them. He says, I know your works, in verse 9, tribulation and poverty. But God says they're rich. In spite of the limitations they had, spiritually they're described as rich. He also tells them in verse 10, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. That they were going to face trials. And God said, don't do that in fear. Do it in strength and do it in courage. He said, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. God says to them, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so the instruction here is actually in a positive way. It was one of being strong and keep your priorities towards God first. It was one to have courage under persecution and We live in a time when people have had to exercise strength and courage. We've had times when brethren have had to make their faith 
what they knew to really and truly be right from the Word of God more important than friends or family. And sometimes it seems like a very minor thing, but it's a huge obstacle to individuals when they put friends or family ahead of the truth of God. Now, I don't believe that those trials and those decisions are of any great significance knowing the types of things that we read that we face in the future in the book of Revelation. But, you know, if you cannot strengthen and be strong in that type of decision, how will we face real trials and and actual persecution, persecution that ends not in a ceasing of suffering, but literally, I mean, someone stopping to persecute you, but literally in death. Well, they persecute you until you lose the very life that God has given to each of us as a gift at this time in the human flesh. And yet God tells us here through Smyrna to have that kind of courage, to have that kind of strength, to have that kind of determination. Again, in verse 11, it says, He who has ear and ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. It's a very interesting statement. God's saying that you may lose this life, but you will live forever. That the second death will not take your life. And so it's a very strong type of encouragement, but it's one, brethren, of having priorities and making sure those priorities are first towards God. And as a minister in the church of God, and the many brethren I've known over the years as a pastor in our former association, I know that this is a message that many people, brethren, have not received and have not taken to heart. Their priorities have become things of this world. Their priorities have become literally their relationships, not with God, but with friends and family and, and sometimes of their own choosing. To Pergamus, in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, God says to Pergamus, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so God's telling here's a church that lived and actually dwelt in a situation of persecution. They saw someone they knew well who was put to death, and they stood, and they were strong. And so we have an encouragement in Smyrna to be strong in your priorities towards God, that some will maybe even face death, but that was not true of everyone. But in that pressure, the pressure cooker of the events happening around them, God also said to them, verse 14, But I have a few things against you, because you have those there who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. And so, even under the pressure they lived in, they still did, in fact, compromise truths of God. And so the encouragement is, do not compromise the truth because of those who hold or push false and liberal teachings in your midst. Don't let them influence you. Don't let them somehow persuade you to doubt or to confusion, to hang strong and be strong with the truths of God. And, you know, that's a very important role of the church of God, is that the church is the pillar or the foundation of the truth. It's the bulwark. It's the wall that we can lean on and find strength in, in areas of doctrinal issues. God's warning here to people who allowed themselves to be compromised they went through trial and they stood in that they didn't just totally give up 
They didn't walk away. They didn't abandon everything they knew. But, brethren, they did compromise. And as we read here, God says, I have a few things against you. In Thyatira, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, God writes to them, he says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. You know, that's an interesting statement because God's commending them. They started, in a sense, rather slow, but that zeal and, and their actual productivity grew. But he says, verse 20, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality, and eat things sacrificed to idols. You know, as you read through this, and a way to summarize it was that they were told to hold fast the truth even through persecution from those outside of the church. You know, the persecution can come from different directions. In this case, it's a persecution that came from outside of those who were God's people. And it also then goes on to exhort them, do not compromise and do not associate with those who would pervert the truth. And I think that's very important to understand. You know, there are a few areas in God's Word where a minister is told very specifically that someone is to be put out of the fellowship of the church of God. And one of those areas is heresy. Someone who would take and who would pervert the truths of God. Because, brethren, that spreads and it hurts. And God warned the people here. They did compromise. And they did allow those who would pervert the truth. And so God's warning us that that's something we would face. That's a challenge that God's people would face at the end time. And do not. Don't compromise but also don't associate with those who would pervert the truths of God. Then to Sardis, we come to the last three eras, and I think most of us are somewhat more familiar with the message, but realize that all of these go together. There's seven churches, but there's also seven admonitions that if you have an ear, listen. The admonition to Sardis was one of waking up. Here we read in verse 2, it says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. You know, one of the Wonderful experiences that I have had is to be a part of the Council of Elders. And on the Council, one of the things that is so encouraging is to see that the leadership in the Church of God, the living Church of God, that we continually go back to the foundation that was laid by Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, that was laid by Jesus Christ as the Church of God in this era was built. And going back to that foundation, brethren, is extremely important in the process of the building that is built. You know, here, Christ is telling Sardis that they've moved from that foundation. They've moved off in different directions. It says, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. They're actually being told to do something that there are people today who actually want to, in a sense, move in the opposite direction. We certainly do not worship Mr. Armstrong, but we accept and recognize his ministry. We understand him, brethren, as the Apostle Paul wrote, to brethren he served. You know, God is our Father. Jesus Christ is described in prophecy as serving as a Father. 
Paul also said to those that he first called and he brought into the knowledge and the truth of God that he was to them a father. To those of us who lived and were part of Ambassador College and a part of the ministry of Mr. Herbert Armstrong, we have to recognize scripturally that that foundation for our spiritual life was laid through his ministry. And not to turn from it, not to turn away in any manner, as others have attacked him or found fault with him. You know, it's persuaded some people to take this approach. And Jesus Christ is saying here, remember how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. That's interesting because in this mix of people, not everyone shared that attitude. And sometimes that's very confusing when you see people doing different things. And God doesn't warn us about those who didn't share that attitude. He warns us of those who had this attitude, who bore this type of fruit. Because we read in verse 4, it says, You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And so God's very clear. You know, it's not everyone. That makes it a little more difficult. It requires a little bit more spiritual discernment. It requires that we listen very carefully and we hear specifically and exactly what God wants us to learn here. And what's being said is very clear. It says to wake up, to arouse yourself, to do the right things, get busy with godly works, and to remember your calling. To remember how God worked in your life and how he brought the truth and the knowledge of his ways to you. Then we read of Philadelphia. And perhaps of all of the seven churches and instruction given to them, we're most familiar with these. In Philadelphia, Christ speaks of the works of the church, the fact that he has set before them an open door. In verse 10 it says, because you have kept my command to persevere. You know, it's interesting that it's really very specific and very clear in the Scripture what God commends Philadelphia for the most. And that was perseverance. Not giving up. Not letting go. And so God says here, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world. Now, we understand that from the Scripture, that the Philadelphia church is going to exist and be alive and well, persevering, hanging on, right to the very days of the tribulation, the great tribulation, a task that will come upon all who dwell on the earth. And, of course, as we read through the complete book of Revelation, We know in chapter 12, when that time does come in history, which lies before us, that God's then going to protect these people. And it's interesting when he says that he will protect them, the qualities that they will possess. Notice here in Revelation chapter 12, in verse 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him. So speaking of those that are identified in Revelation chapter 3 as those that Christ would keep from the time of tribulation that would test all of mankind. But notice the qualities that they possess that are mentioned specifically here. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the acknowledgement of the sacrifice and the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
And I, when you read this, I can help, not help but take note that Mr. Meredith, in leading the living church of God, has emphasized and recognized that we needed to emphasize in a way that we had not done Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We've even had some who've criticized us for that, said that we departed from the gospel of God, and that's ridiculous. We read on here, it says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, that they continued with a work and a witness, and they did not love their lives to the death. God commends them because their priorities were such that they put God first. They made decisions, brethren, where God was placed first in their priorities. And that's extremely important. We've seen already in reading about some of the other church eras and the lessons that God gave them and the admonition he gave them, how important it was that they would not compromise priorities. And so going back to chapter 3, the instruction given here it says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the isle of trial, which will come upon the whole world, to teach those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. And so we live in a time when the return of Jesus Christ in terms of human history is not far off. Maybe for us in our individual lives, It seems like a long period of time. You know, 10, 15, 20 years seems like a very long period of time, especially if you're 5, 10 years of age. I notice that you get a little older and time seems to go a little faster. But nevertheless, even 10 years from now, just to think of 2019, that seems quite a ways off. But the reality is 20, 30, even 40 years, 50 years, and the big picture of what God is doing of 6,000 years of human history is a very short span of time. It's right at the very end of that period. And so the scripture says, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. You know, brother, that's a warning. You do not allow yourself in some way to be distracted or pulled away from your purpose, the direction and dedication of your calling, that no one, no person would take your crown. We've Unfortunately, we've had times with people in our very time we live in, there seems to be a focus on personality to find fault with other people. And that can be discouraging, hurtful to people. And God specifically here to this church, and again, he says to everyone, says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, again, this is a warning throughout time. Do not allow that to happen. Focus first on the truth. Focus on God's Word. And then, brethren, follow those who follow the Word of God. And that's been the pattern in God's Word and the instruction to God's servants. It's been true in times past, and it's very true today. Then we read of the last of the seven church eras, and that's of Laodicea. And it's interesting, here in Laodicea, we read that God first says, I know your works that are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that they were cold or hot. He says, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You know, that's interesting because that goes right back to, in a way, to Ephesus. God said to them to hold fast that first love, that zeal. And so, in a sense, it's like circling right back to the same kind of situation. Someone who has lost that, perhaps here, however, for somewhat different reasons. Because it tells us why. It says, because you say, I am rich have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. 
Now, they had become rich. They thought of themselves as spiritually rich. God does not describe them that way. And perhaps rather than physical blessings and the wonderful things that we live in in this modern age, we have beautiful homes. You know, you might think, well, my house isn't really not all that beautiful. It's like a, you know, two-bedroom or one bath and a little living room, and it's 25 years old. Well, you don't have to go very, very far back in history and, and to take a look at a log cabin or maybe a, a building made of mud and realize that you live in a wonderful house. You live in a building that's dry, that you can cool in the summer. might be a window air conditioner, but you can cool it, or you have a fan. You're not having to fan yourself. You want to go back and look in terms of human history, you live, all of us live, every one of us in a Western society, live in an environment where we enjoy wonderful physical blessings. And in those blessings, it's easy to to think, well, I'm okay. Things are all right. God tells us here that they were not. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes. So God literally gives them instruction to put God first, not to be caught up in the materialistic things. And even in blessings, to remain humble and to remain zealous. Now, what's interesting here is that God speaks to them about overcoming when they extract themselves from this situation. Verse 19, it says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him and dine with him and be with him. To him who overcomes. You know, the first thing they have to do is extract themselves from this attitude or this lethargy. And God makes it very plain that he will be right there. And when that takes place, it says, Then to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So in these seven churches, if you just break down and say, What is God's instruction to each of them? There is a continuity of message. And it actually circles back around somewhat to the very beginning. It's a very simple message of being strong, of persevering, of not compromising, of not putting up with those who would pervert the truths of God, and then remembering your calling and holding fast to the foundation. And then, brethren, with that, persevering and being dedicated. That instruction is given specifically to those of us who live at this time. And it was given specifically to us by Jesus Christ, who's preparing us for his kingdom. Notice in the book of Malachi, in Malachi chapter 3, it says, We are here to attend the Feast of Tabernacles and to rejoice before God. We're also going through a time of preparation, and God's working in our life. In the book of Malachi, we see it's Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's through trials, sometimes it's through blessings, but lessons are being learned and we're being prepared. Christ is spoken of here in prophecy. Verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and is and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. You know, we do go through trials. And there are some of the things we suffer. 
you know, are very difficult. But we're going through a process of preparation. The spiritual calling that God's given us is the beginning of a struggle. It's just like being in a cocoon, so to speak, and God wants us to break out of that. But that process of of coming out and, and struggling, it's a process of preparation. Now, this process, as we read on, verse 3, it says that they may offer to the Lord the offering in righteousness, that we will be prepared as God's servants. And when we come literally to serve in his kingdom, that we'll be well prepared for the responsibilities and duties that we have. Now, it's interesting in the scripture we have instruction that's specific in terms of prophecy, in terms of what would happen in the church of God, what the trials will be and the difficulties will be. Some of the things that are here also are things contained in other parts of the scripture. I think one of the greatest challenges we have in the end time, brethren, is in fact the abundance that we have, the reality that we're exposed to so much of what goes on around us in the world today. We live in a a different world in terms of awareness. You can get up in the morning and know within minutes what happens in China or Europe. We literally, in the church of God, know within literally at times a matter of minutes of what has happened within God's church if an event takes place. That awareness and that knowledge has also sort of opened the door to the things that happen in the world and the things that are happening. And I believe in some ways are very, very important to the instruction God has given both to Philadelphia, to Laodicea, and to Sardis. Because one of the difficult trials that God's people have always faced is that this is not God's world. And it's so important we understand that when we come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, we're taken out of the world. But, brethren, the world we live in is not God's. And so some of the very principles that we learn, they're not real in this world. An example that I would point out to you is we say, well, there's, you know, for every effect there's a cause or cause and effect. But, you know, in this world today that's not true in terms of conduct. Notice here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And I think because of, of this, sometimes people fall into a trap. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 11, the writer wrote by God's inspiration, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding nor favor to men of skill. But time and chance happen to them all. You know, one of of the human weaknesses is to judge by the things we see. And what we see in this world today is not God's world. But if we allow it to influence us spiritually, we're making a huge mistake. This is brought out also in the book of Psalms, in Psalm chapter 73. It's a psalm of Asaph. And I'll not read all of it, but it brings this lesson out in a very powerful way. How Asaph at first, he saw how people prospered and yet they broke God's laws. They turn from the, you know, I would use the analogy. I've seen people who've turned from the truths of God, and, and they've not been struck by lightning. I've seen whole groups of people who've compromised certain teachings of God's word, and nothing has happened. Now, when that takes place, it's, it's easy to, to fall into the trap, the one that's mentioned also in Ecclesiastes, I believe it's chapter 8, verse 11, that if we don't see judgment speedily, then we sort of let our guard down. We forget the realities that there is a living God and the things that he says will happen. And as you go through, 
what God says to the seven churches, I think especially toward the end time, that becomes an important factor. Here in Psalm chapter 73, Asaph describes humanly what happens when we see that. He describes how the wealthy and those who are rich and those who turn from God, how they spoke lofty things and they set their mouth against the heavens in verse 9. And their tongue walks through the earth. They're without restraint. In verse 12, it says, Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. What was his human reaction to that? Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. And that was hard. Here he was trying to worship and serve God. And he was going through trials and he was being persecuted and having difficulty. It's as if I had said, I will speak thus. Behold, I have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. It didn't really Makes sense. It was a hard thing. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. And how they have, how they are brought to desolation. As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Now, Asaph realized as you read on that he was foolish to let himself to be influenced by this, to think this way. But, you know, brother, he acknowledged the fact that it did. And that's a very important message that we do not allow that. We realize as in the times in which we live and the age that we live in, that the message that God gave to the seven churches, every one of them is pertinent and important to our spiritual success. Because God, God has called us to victory. He's called us to overcome and not be weighed down by materialistic things, not to be in some way pulled away from the truth, and brethren, especially not to allow others to pervert the truth, to influence us, others who are critical and have a critical spirit to, in some way, infect our heart. You know, go through and read. I've, I've just gave an overview, and, and there's certainly even more detail as you read through Revelations chapters 2 and 3. But we're being prepared, prepared for God's kingdom. And we need to realize that there's a powerful message here that will help us, that will give us direction so our steps are sure. Because what is involved is extremely important. You know, the wonderful blessing of the Feast of Tabernacles is that we see an insight into the kingdom of God. That we have an opportunity to to focus on what it's going to be like in the world tomorrow. And Brendan, as you do, the most to me, the most inspiring and encouraging thing of all is to realize that whatever trials, whatever difficulty, whatever struggle we go through, that in the end it's going to be more than worth it. And I'd like to conclude by reading to me one of the most inspiring passages in God's Word. It's in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12 and verse 1, it speaks of the very end and the fulfillment of God's promises to his servants, those who've taken to heart the admonition of Jesus Christ from the very throne of God as he gave direction and guidance and step to those people, his brethren, who live in the latter days. And here in Daniel chapter 12, in verse 1, it says, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there should be a time of trouble. So speaking in the days that lie ahead, in the times in which we live, such as never was since there was a nation, 
even to that time. At that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And brethren, when these words are fulfilled, we win. <laughs> 